Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jeffrey Lipshaw, Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School. We will discuss his article, Halting, Intuition, Heuristics, and Action, Alan Turing and the Theoretical Constraints on AI Lawyering, which was published in the Savannah Law Review as well as his work on artificial intelligence. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks. It's great to be here. So as you know, I'm a huge fan of this paper, which I read in advance of the conference that both of us went to. And it really informed my understanding of Turing and frankly, um, informed my thinking about artificial intelligence as well. So, so I, I, you know, I really recommend the paper to readers and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Um, I, I was wondering if you could start the conversation by just telling readers who may not be familiar with him sort of who, who Alan Turing was. So Alan Turing uh, probably is most famous for uh, being essentially the head of the uh, British facility at Bletchley Park during World War II that uh, uh, broke the uh, German Enigma Code. Uh, But before that, he had been one of the really world's leading pure mathematicians. And uh, uh, his claim to fame uh, before World War II was his response, his 1936 paper, in which he, wa- he, in which he basically conducted a thought experiment and created a, an imaginary machine that solved or proved that there was no solution to a particular problem in pure mathematics that had been posed by one of the great mathematicians of the early 20th century, David Hilbert. And when he did this proof, it essentially anticipated, it created the, the, the structure and the, the rationale for the modern digital computer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people refer to this as a, a Turing machine, or in some cases, a universal Turing machine. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what a Turing machine is, what the relationship between a Turing machine and a universal Turing machine would be, and sort of, sort of in a nutshell, sort of like, how does this thought experiment work and how does it anticipate a computer? Sure. So... What Turing was trying to do was uh, answer the following question, or to put it a different way, David Hilbert had posed a series of 23 problems in mathematics, this was in 1900, uh, that had to be solved or had yet to be solved. And one of them was, is there always a definite mathematical procedure, one that follows a series of logical rules of inference that can determine in a finite amount of time or in a finite number of steps whether a mathematical statement is true or false. And so, for example, um, uh, take the Pythagorean theorem or take Fermat's last theorem. Uh, 
Um, is there a set of logical steps that you could perform or always perform that would be able to tell you that that particular algorithm, that particular mathematical statement is true? And what Turing did was he, he determined or he figured out or he proved um, that you never can. There is no such mathematical procedure. And he did it by envisioning a machine. And the nature of the machine was there was a, essentially a tape. And each tape would, and each square with this, within this infinitely long tape would move underneath a machine or which would look at what was in that square of the tape. Nowadays, we would think of it as either a one or a zero. And the processor in the machine would do something based on what was appearing in that particular square on the tape. And the reason he did that was he wanted to come up with a definite procedure for assessing or, or for proceeding logically through a series of mathematical propositions. So that's a Turing machine. That's a Turing machine. A universal Turing machine is essentially one that can solve any mathematical problem. It can do any computation. So anything that is computable is computable on a universal Turing machine. Mm, mm, mm. So, so how would this Turing machine help Turing solve the problem that's, that was kind of posed that he wanted it to address? So what, what, what Turing did was, again, he imagined this machine and the machine would, the machine would look at the tape, the tape would run past what he called the scanner, right? You can imagine that in, in modern computer terms. And the scanner would read again one square at a time. It would look at the symbol and the machine would have instructions. What do you do when you see that symbol? And it would either move forward, it would move backward, it would change its state or whatever. And what that allowed him to do was compute any computable number. And that was what he was trying to do. Could he come up with a method using this imaginary machine that would allow him to compute any computable number? And what he wanted to do was see, could the machine get to a point where it computed the number or did it go into a loop? That is to say, if it could compute the computable number, it was, quote, circle free. But if it couldn't compute it, that is, if it went into a loop, it was circular. And that would mean that the number was not computable. So that was his methodology. Mm -hmm. And so... In a sense, what, what what the question is, do we have a situation where the computer will stop and produce a result or just 
keep on doing what it's doing indefinitely because it's a circle that doesn't have any ending point. In other words, and we've all experienced it. And the and I and as as you know, I I start the paper with the idea of um, particularly if you have a Macintosh and you ask it to do something. Uh, and you start to see that pinwheel spinning. And the question is, is the pinwheel spinning because the computer's just working and will come to an answer to your problem, whether it's loading a web page or doing a calculation? Or is it spinning on indefinitely and the only way you're going to get out of this is to hit the power button and shut the computer off? And the and, and what and the and and in in a nutshell, what Turing was trying to do was say, is there a procedure, is there a mathematical procedure in which I can determine whether that spinning pinwheel means we're going to come to an answer or we're just in a loop? And what he came out with was, I can't, I can't. There is no way to do that. Not for every circumstance. Right, right. So the question is like, can we know whether the computer will ultimately stop? Like, not what's the answer going to be, but like, is there an answer or is this a mathematical problem without a definite answer? That, that's correct. That, that's absolutely right. Now, I don't want to overstate it. Um, uh, there are today what are called program, ver- program verification programs that to some extent, can do that. Um, But at the extremes, at the extremes, what those program verification programs might do is, yes, there is a computable answer. No, there isn't a computable answer, or I don't know, right? Because if it could always give you an answer to the question, it would have solved the Turing problem. Mm. Um, and it hasn't been solved. That is to say, you can't always say in every instance that you can determine whether the program will come to a result or simply spin in a loop. Right, right. So one of the things I love so much about this is that like Turing like conceptually asked a question about an entire kind of form of technology that didn't exist yet. And the question is still salient and relevant to that technology today. Um, and, and in particular, as you point out in the paper, relevant, at least arguably relevant to the way we think about kind of algorithmic artificial intelligence. So, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of your kind of gloss in the paper on sort of where we are in the conversation around artificial intelligence and why you think the problem that Turing identified is an important consideration in that conversation. I suppose if you'll you'll bear with me um, to talk a little bit about how I came to the problem. Uh, And... uh, your listeners probably don't know. I am um, a late in life entrant into legal academia. And I had a long career as a real life lawyer 
um, particularly as the chief legal officer for a couple of very large businesses. Now, I, 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 I suspect for those 26 years in between law school and joining a faculty, uh, I never really lost the, 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 the scholarly or the philosophical bent. But when I got into academia, my particular shtick was thinking about all of those circumstances in which I, as a lawyer, had to go beyond the logic of the law to solve problems. And I ended up writing a number of articles about it and thinking about it and ended up writing a book about it, about what are the limits of legal reasoning. And I started with the proposition that legal reasoning is itself algorithmic. It is, if not, algori if not algorithmic, at least it is based in a formal if-then logic. And I gave a presentation on the book and suggested that there were, to, to the audience that there were essentially human capabilities that were unlikely to be replicated uh, by machines. Um, aha moments of insight. And I was challenged. Uh, and I was challenged in particular with AlphaGo. Right. And for those of your listeners who are not familiar with this, Go, the, 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 the Chinese game Go, an incredibly complex uh, uh, form of beyond chess or Chinese checkers or whatever, that operates significantly on the tuition, on the intuition of the player. Mm -hmm. um, and unlike chess, which is far more logical. Great Go players play by intuition. And the AlphaGo program not only defeated one of the great Go players, but appeared to be doing it by having a move that was inspired by intuition. And so I began to think a lot about okay, what are the limits of what a computer can do? And so the Turing paper came, the, the, the Turing paper came from the, prop, the proposition that said, okay, I am going to imagine that there is a robot lawyer, an, artificial, an artificially intelligent lawyer that is capable of doing anything that is conceivably possible by a digital brain. What can't a digital brain do? And the one thing that I knew a digital brain couldn't do was <laughs> solve the Turing problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it really is like the, this Turing problem, which you also refer to as the halting problem, like knowing whether there's a right answer and being able to like essentially know when to cut bait as it were, does seem like such a fundamental metaphor for the sort of most kind of critical lawyering skills, as it were. And, and, that, and, and that's the point. And that's the point. And that's the reason for the word action in the title 
And it continues to be my, as I mentioned to you before we got started, right now I'm having a love-hate relationship with the piece that I'm working on. So sometimes it's my inspiration and sometimes it's my bete noir. But it is the ability that we as humans have to make a decision, to make a decision in the face of uncertainty, and beyond that, the will to act. Because if you, if you think about it, I, I don't care how sophisticated the digital brain is, at some point, all of that machine thinking has to translate into a will or a desire to do something in the physical world. And you can program it to do that. But there becomes this infinite regress where there has to be an ultimate programmer. Mm. And I have yet to figure out how that's anything beyond a human brain that has evolved to have the will to do things. The will not only to decide, but to act on the decision. So, so Jeff, in... In your paper, you, you you talk among other things about the concept of the the law in action and sort of what we want to accomplish when we're doing lawyering. H- how do you think this insight about the kind of the halting problem identified by Turing and how that might affect the sort of algorithmic practice of law? might be relevant to thinking about how we conceptualize the future of legal practice and and maybe legal education as well. I don't think it's as much a problem for legal practice as it is for legal education. Uh, Indeed, uh, that may be one of the frustrations that experienced practitioners have when they look back at legal education. And to some extent, this morphs into... Uh, or or segues into um, my more recent piece. I uh, I was thinking about the, in some respects, unholy confluence of the influence of Kahneman, Tversky and Kahneman's behavioral psychology with artificial intelligence. Because if you catch Kahneman at his most honest, what he's saying is to deal with all of these unhealthy and dangerous heuristics and biases, if you can rely on an algorithm, do it. And just intuitively, as an old-time practitioner, that seemed wrong. It just seemed to me that there was more value in intuition and insight in what he would call system one thinking uh, than he was giving credit for. And I picked up a wonderful treatise on problem solving for lawyers Um, namely uh, the treatise on problem-solving, decision-making, and professional judgment that Paul Brest and Linda Krieger wrote. And uh, I have chided them in in a good-natured way 
It's a fabulous book. I would use it in a heartbeat as the text in a problem-solving course. But they approach lawyerly decision-making in the same way, which is we should deliberate, we should really be concerned about what intuition gives us. Deliberation is good, it's disciplined, it's thoughtful, and in other words, Kahneman system two thinking. But system one intuition is something that we really just have to control. And I just wanted to turn the balance on that a little bit. And, uh, and think about what it is as, as the process of being a whole lawyer, not just a thinking machine lawyer, but being a whole lawyer that goes beyond mere deliberation, that goes beyond merely the things that might conceivably be algorithmatized, if that's a word. And it again, this this is this is the these are the, the subjects that I'm wrestling with now. I think being a great practitioner involves something more than merely the process of analysis. It involves will, it involves decision making. And um, to take another wonderful treatise on lawyering, David Binder's book on counseling, professional lawyerly counseling, and the idea of client-centered counseling in which it's really the client's job to make decisions. I think practitioners will tell you that that's a crock, that more often than not, the job of the lawyer to be truly effective is to in an affective way, step into, the, step into the client's mind. Indeed, step into the client's desires and will and understand not just the analytics, but what do you want? What do you need? Uh, and I don't think that we teach that particularly well. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. And I, and I gotta say, like, I mean, reading the draft of your new work, it really struck me how the halting problem paper illuminated and helped me understand the perspective that you were taking because it, it it seems to me that like so much of what we talk about is as if this kind of algorithmic analytic approach to problem solving is the kind of core function of a lawyer. But at the end of the day, what we really care about is results, right? We want outcomes that are beneficial and the algorithmic analytic side of it provides us with perhaps sort of color on those problems, but ultimately doesn't tell us what the right or the best or the desirable outcome is going to be. Well, and, and to your point, it, it seems to me that, that 
the analytics are a crucial part of lawyering. Um, I could give you, I can give you some recent examples it, from my own experience just this summer, but that the things that are likely more part of Kahneman system one kind of thinking intuitions about the right answer insights in which you, and I should say, by the way, that Brest and Krieger point this out insights in which you are able to look at one set of problem solving that you did and see that there is an analogy or a metaphor or a link or an insight into another set of problem solving. Um, and then ultimately, the ability to say, I see this many arguments, I see that many arguments, I see different things, and I now have to advise, which one do I choose? That all of that is part of the, the non-deliberative thinking that the behaviorists poo-poo, um, but on the other hand is very difficult to set down in algorithms or arti artificial intelligence. Mm. And mm. so it's, it's a matter in some respects of, I'm not sure that I'm, that, that I'm um, breaking new ground, but simply resetting the balance between the analytics, which are undeniably important, and again, the will to act, the ability to make a decision, the ability to come off the fence, the ability to say to a client, I've looked at all of the data. I've looked at all of the data. And part of this comes from analytics. Part of it comes from my intuition. Part of it comes from an aha moment that I had at two o'clock this morning. But I think this is where we ought to go. Mm. 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 Yeah, I mean, it seems so much like about the difference between kind of analyzing the data that you have available and understanding what it actually means in any kind of sensible sense. And, and it reminds me so much of a struggle I often find myself having with students who I find that so many law students want to turn law into mathematics in a weird way. It's like they want the rules to give them – they want the rules that we talk about or the, the kind of the doctrine they talk about in class to be almost like mathematics where they can plug in the data and it spits out an answer – and getting them to the place where they understand that the rules are just heuristics, not algorithms, is, is always such a struggle. So let me give you two quick examples. I teach contracts to first-year students of precisely what you've just been describing, Brian. Uh, one of them is um, the infamous Battle of the Forms, 2207. And... Um, it's like tic-tac-toe. And what I point out to them is if you have equally knowledgeable and talented lawyers, the seller's lawyer can never win the game. That is to say, 
if what the seller is going to try to do is disclaim all warranties of merchantability and everything else, if you cause everything to get canceled out, which you can, sort of like playing tic-tac-toe, if you know what you're doing, you can always make sure that you end up in a draw. And if in the battle of the forms you end up in a draw, the buyer always wins because it turns out the UCC's warranties are buyer or consumer oriented. And I oftentimes show the end of the movie War Games in which um, Matthew Broderick is hacked into NORAD and started a potentially a thermonuclear war. And so what they need to teach the computer is the futility of the algorithms. And so they started playing tic-tac-toe. And eventually, Matthew Broderick saves the world. And then there's this long pause. And the computer says, a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. And that's what I tell my students about this particular aspect of the UCC. You can't win. The only winning move is not to play the legal game. You have to come up with something else. The other example is the rules in the restatement of contracts on order of performance. Um, and what the rule says, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, if, if the contract doesn't otherwise provide and performances can be, can be performed simultaneously, they shall be performed simultaneously. And for this one, what I do is I show them a clip of the movie Ronin, which is basically a guns for money exchange out in the middle of the night in Paris. And at the end, I ask them, okay, you now know the law. You now know the law, but you've got Robert De Niro on one side with the money and the thugs on the other side with the guns. Who goes first under the law? And they scratch their heads and say, there is no law, because if it can be performed simultaneously, it shall be performed simultaneously. And then we proceed into the law of escrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. That's great. That's great. So, I, I mean, it, Jeff, it, it, in closing, I mean, it seems to me this kind of brings us in some ways, back around to your initial paper and this sort of observation about this, what I kind of love about is this sort of like this abstract possibility that artificial intelligence will soon be able to do all kinds of things that, you know, may or may not replace or be a substitute for what lawyers do. But what really struck me is that the, the paper is really not even about that kind of hypothetical possibility. But in a lot of ways, it seems like the bigger project is thinking about sort of what's the value added of of lawyering, of legal education? Like what should we be focusing on when we think about what we can do to help our students and help ourselves be be better lawyers. So am I understanding where you're going with this project? I think you're right. And I think the irony, of course, is 
that um, when I think about the continuum of, of what machines are capable of and what humans continue to be capable of, my mantra is whatever can be digitized will be digitized. Right? So don't waste your time. Right, Spending a lot of time, at least if you're thinking about the future, on teaching those things that might well be digitized. But let's go to the other end of the spectrum and think about theoretically what it is that the digits can't do. And let's start there. And it seems to me that where that is, is in the will to act, the ability to act, and the ability to decide. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. This is a really provocative and um, an interesting conversation that touched on so many different subjects. Love doing it. Try this dream.